Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Acts chapter 2. In World War I... How should I start this? There's a movie about World War One, I, I should say. It's fairly recent. It's called 1917. Anyone see it? Okay. I love war movies. And the cinematography is amazing because it's like it's one shot the whole time. But the story, uh, the plot of the story is of this young kid. I don't know how old, but they were fairly young as a world war so many of you seniors that are here today enjoying graduation in high school if you were in this war you'd probably be in europe fighting it well the plot is that these two soldiers are are delivering a urgent message to a squadron or another i don't know what you would call it group of soldiers that are about to Go head first and attack the enemy, but it's a trap. And thousands of them are going to be slaughtered. And the one person who's bringing the message is supposed to deliver it to his brother, who is a part of that company that's going to be attacked. The whole movie follows this mission. This mission of delivering a message to a pretty much dead company. They're going to die. It's a missional movie. And that idea of a mission, we all love those kind of movies. Every movie that we love and hold dear is, has a mission to it, whether it's Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, or Marvel movies, or you know, war movies. There's a mission. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about... What my sermon is titled is a soul-winning church. It's a church, a group of people who have been saved by the Holy Spirit, who have, by the message that was delivered by the apostles, by the Holy Spirit, they now are taking this message and they're on a mission to bring it to people who are lost and dead in their sin. They were an evangelistic church and we've been looking at not only the gospel, how to become a Christian, but what are the effects or the fruit of the gospel in believers' lives. And we looked at the first is that they are dedicated, they're spirit-filled people who love the church. Verse 42, look at Acts 2. Let's just read this. Acts 2.42, what are the fruits of the gospel? And they, the 3,000 that were just saved, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of the bread and prayers And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together. There was this unity, this partnership, and they had all things in common. And they were were selling their possessions. The gospel had so wrecked their lives. The generosity of God to save them had been so real to them that now they couldn't help but be generous. They're selling their possessions 
belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Why are they giving it to people who have need? Because Christ gave his life for people who had a need. Gospel produces the mission. Verse 46. And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord, this is our passage, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's all we're looking at tonight. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, which presupposes or what, which implies that the message was being spoken. That it was going out and people, lost people, were receiving the gospel and God was saving them and bringing them into the church. And it was happening daily. No one is saved outside of the hearing and the preaching of God's word. Therefore, the church was a soul-winning church. That was the effect of the gospel on them. They were zealous for evangelism. Have we, Redeemer students, lost our urgency and our zeal for evangelism? Is that effect and fruit of the gospel taking place in your life? I want to talk about that tonight. I want to encourage you, Lord willing, encourage you to bolster your boldness and zeal and awe of God for evangelism. Okay, that's my goal. I'm going to do this by looking at three questions. Three questions we have to ask about this passage. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the first question is, who is being saved? Or who are we evangelizing to? Who is it that we're called to reach? What is the nature of those people we're called to reach? Who are the those who are being saved? What we learn here in Acts 2 is that this was a universal message of the gospel, right? Remember, there were millions of people in Jerusalem and uh, different, of different nations, different ethnic groups, different backgrounds. And God, through the Holy Spirit, gave the apostles tongues, that means other dialects and languages, to speak the gospel in those people's languages. So they heard this is a universal message. It's to a universal people who have a universal problem. So who is it that we're evangelizing to? Well, it's, it's to a people, a universal people, all nations who have a problem. Those who are being saved. Saved from what? If people are getting saved, that means that they need rescuing, which means they're in trouble. So what kind of trouble are they in? Who is it that we're trying to reach? What are you saved from if you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I was saved at an early age. Saved from What? The answer is original sin. Original sin is a doctrine, a truth, that means that when Adam sinned in the garden against God, that his sin was imputed or credited to all humankind's account. Every single person 
has solidarity or is in union with Adam. For through one man, Romans 5, 12, sin and death came into the world. How do we know? Because all have sinned. Original sin. A good picture of the original sin doctrine is in Harry Potter. He's got the scar on his head. What does that mean? It means he has union with Voldemort, Voldemort, right? In a lot of ways. If you're not allowed to see Harry Potter, it's okay. We are all infected with a sin. What are we saved from? We're saved from sin. So the question then is, how bad does this sin affect us? How bad is our condition? How bad is the, what's the diagnosis? How bad is the COVID? Do we have, are we asymptomatic or are we symptomatic? I think we're all symptomatic here of original sin. How bad is it? What is our condition? There are some who believe our condition isn't that bad, that people are naturally good. Uh, the pagan monk Pelagian believed that Adam's sin, but Adam's sin was not imputed or credited to all people. In fact, we are all born naturally good. That's what Pelagian, the pagan monk, believed. Semi-Pelagians or Arminians, they would believe that we are infected with Adam's sin, but not to the point where we are spiritually dead. Rousseau, I can't say his first name, he was a philosopher, Jean Rousseau, believed that all people were born good. What makes them bad, what makes them evil, is the systems around them that causes them to act out. And there was this painter, I forget his name, who was studied under Jean Rousseau, and he wanted to test out the theory. And so what he did is he moved to uh, an island where no one else was, where the savage was. This This is his language. Those that have been unaffected by systems, by the Western culture. To see the natural state of the savage. Since they haven't been affected, they should be good. What did he find? find? He found that the tribe there was plagued with STDs. They were all alcoholics. They were murderers. They were adulterers, and he left disgusted, saying, no, 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 it isn't that all people are born good. It's that sin and depravity is a universal truth. It's not the outside that causes us to sin. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out in the heart. Total depravity. So what, how bad is the condition? Who is it that we're trying to reach? We're we're trying to reach those who are totally depraved. That is, in all of their faculties, every part of them is infected and affected by sin, starting with the mind. Romans 1, 21 through 23. Man's, those lost in sin, their minds are depraved. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Remember in Avengers, when 
Loki tried to steal the little blue cube. I forget what it's called. Tesseract. Tesseract, right? And Hawkeye's trying to stop him, but he stops Hawkeye and puts his little staff thing on his chest. And then he becomes a slave to Loki in a sense, right? His mind is taken over by Loki. He's now enslaved to whatever Loki wants to do. Well, what the Bible teaches about sinners is that their minds are enslaved to their sin. They're blinded by their sin. Their foolish hearts were darkened. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person cannot discern the things of the Spirit. It's folly to them. They, They don't have the mind of Christ. So not only is the mind affected... But the heart, the heart, now think about the heart. The heart is the central core of who we are. It's the the bedrock of our affections, our desires. Everything who we are is what I mean by the heart. I'm not talking about your literal heart, but think about your literal heart. If that fails, the whole body fails. What does the Bible have to say about the heart of the sinner? Genesis 6, 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw that. The Lord said that. Heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Original sin has infected and affected our entire being. You may look pretty and pristine morally on the outside. You may look like a 1969 hot rod Mustang with the paint looks amazing, right? Just like that car is awesome. Wow, look at them live for Jesus. But then you lift up the hood and the engine and the transmission are all rotted and trashed. What good is the car if the engine, the very core of it, is destroyed? That's what sin does to our hearts. Spurgeon said it this way, As the salt flavors every drop in the ocean, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. Think of that. I think we naturally think, oh, we're not that bad. Why, why aren't we urgent in evangelism? Why? Because we don't think the lost person is in that dire of a need. But when we look at Scripture, they're in a very terrible spot. The, not only is the heart depraved, the mind, but the will. We hear free will thrown around all the time. Actually, Pelagian came up with free will, a pagan monk. It's not a biblical concept. Romans 8, 7, 8. What does it say about our will, our action? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot. They don't have the ability to please God. Like like asking a newborn baby, right when it's born, how come you can't talk? How come you can't run? Talk to me. Say something. Stop trying. Why can't they do that? They don't have the ability to. It's like you taking a lion, 
putting a lion in a room and putting lettuce therefore to eat. You try to force that to eat lettuce. It's not going to do it. Why? It's not in its nature to do that. It only eats meat. Well, Jesus doesn't talk about this. What, what, what does Jesus say about the will? John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave to sin. You know, I was reading, I've been reading a lot on social justice, the racial issues that are going on right now. I'm trying to decipher it, what is biblical, what is not. I've been reading William Wilberforce's biography. You know who he was? He was an abolitionist of the slave, slave trade in London. Christian man, amazing man, about five foot tall. <laughs> and his voice thundered. It was amazing. There's this horrific chapter on what, the, of the nature of the slave trade and what they called the Middle Passage. Africans on the, on the continent of Africa would go and they would kidnap their own people and they would enslave them and then sell them to the slave traders. And then the slave traders would ship them all the way to the plants where they need to go and work and they would sell them off. And so that passage in the ship was called the middle passage. And what they would do is they would bind the slaves with their hands and their wrists and shackles and their feet. And then they would lay them on their side in the bowels of the ship, side by side, sometimes stacking them on one another for weeks on end, leaving them with only a few buckets to relieve themselves. And if they did, sometimes the buckets would spill over. Sometimes they would just go right where they were. Disgusting treatment of just wickedness. Just disgusting nature of that. That's your sin. It's what it means to be enslaved to sin. But can't my good works outweigh my bad? Don't I have a decision? Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Your good good deeds cannot outweigh the bad. Here is my polluted garment that I keep in my car to do my oil. This is your good works before God. Here, Lord, here's my good works. Filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64. 6. But don't you see there's some non-dirty spots here? See, those are my good works at Wednesday night, you know. But all the others. <laughs> trying to earn your salvation. Good picture of that. Trying to earn your salvation, it's literally impossible. If you are ever to go to Auschwitz, and, or if you go to the Holocaust Museum, in D.C., you will see that above the concentration camps, they had this German phrase. And the German phrase said this. It said, works will set you free. Work will set you free. You work and you will be free. But we all know that they worked to death. There was no freeing. And so what did those people look like? What did those Jews look like in the Holocaust? You've seen the pictures. That's trying to earn your salvation. It's impossible. Your good works are but filthy rags. The life of man is depraved. There's none righteous, no, not one. See, we've got to understand, that why do we make decisions? Why, why do we make decisions in our life? 
It's, we make decisions based off our desires, right? I've used this illustration before. The reason why I went to Portillo's and not Five Guys is because I desired an Italian beef sausage to just eat and devour. It just sounded so good. And so my decision, my decision, my choice was ba- – and the cake shakes. I mean those, those are great, right? <laughs> Sounds good. We should go after. Um, my decision, my choice was grounded or based on my desires, right? That's how we make decisions. So when we think of free will, all of our decisions are based on our desires. But what does the Bible say about our desires? Adam's sin has infected your desires. You don't desire God anymore. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. See, that's the problem. You have free choice, but your choices are based on your desires, and your desires are corrupt, as all the verses I just read. That's who we're trying to save. How can man be saved then? (laughs) That's the question. JT, how do we reach them with the gospel? What role do we have? Why, Why is this important? Why do I give you all these verses? Because the reason you are not urgent in your evangelism is one, you do not fully see and realize what you were saved from. All of those things that I just talked about, that's what God saved you from in his love. And when you come to recognize that, it gives you a love for God, but then automatically a love for people. And secondly, the reason why you're not urgent in evangelism is you do not think those who don't know Jesus aren't doing too bad in their life. When really, they're living a life of hell on earth and hell for all of eternity. Are you spiritually asleep in the light? What do I mean? You go to church, you're in the light, you're a Christian, but you're really asleep. You're numb to the lost. You don't weep over them, you don't pray for them, you don't go after them. What can give you that desire? Only God can. So, I spent too much time there. Who is it that we're trying to reach? The spiritually dead. Point number two. Who is doing the saving? And the adding, how then will sinners be saved? What does the text say? So look at Acts chapter two, look at verse 47. What does it say? They're praising God, having favor with all people. And the apostles added to their number day by day. And the pastor added to the, what does it say? And the Lord added, the Lord added. Who is doing the saving and the adding? That's my second point. It's the Lord. It's not man. Now, you must underline the word, the Lord. It's not just, don't breeze over that. That's a title. And that title means, it connotates power. It's translated mighty one or Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, possessor, ruler, authoritative one. What is it saying? It's talking about Christ. It's Christ who adds people to the church. It's Christ who saves people. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord and sovereign over all things. He created all things. And the Lord is the one who is sovereign over salvation. He is the one who is in control. He's the one who is playing the game. What I love to, I love to play sports games on the video games on Xbox. 
And uh, I used to love NCAA football, 2012. It was an old game. They don't, I don't know if they make it anymore. But you could be a high school person or a high school player and you get drafted or you get uh, recruited and everything. And there were some times, some games that I didn't want to play, so I would simulate it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Just like hoping it works out in my favor. Like if I lose this game, you know I'm going to quit and then restart the game, simulate it until I, get, I go through. The Lord didn't just create this planet and then say, simulation. All right, I'm going to sit back, let man do his own thing. No, he's active. Not only did he create the world, he's sovereign over it. He's in it. He's guiding it. God is the author of salvation, not man. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. Ephesians 2.8, For we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift, not of your own doing. Yes, it's God who saves. I believe that. But man must take the first step toward God in faith in order to be saved. Is that true? Does man have to take the first step? How can a dead man take the first step towards God? (laughs) He can't. What does Nicodemus ask What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? He says, Nicodemus, you want to be in the kingdom of heaven? Here's here's what needs to happen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, born from above, unless God first pursues you and opens your heart, and guess what? God wants to do that. And he does it through the preaching of the gospel, which we'll get to. If salvation at any point is dependent on you, on what you do, then it is not good works. If you are required to make the first step, then that means that you contributed to your salvation, which means you could go to heaven and then pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. I did half and the Lord did the other half. Half glory to me, half glory to God. Or is it sola deo gloria? All glory to God alone, saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. I do not believe in a works-based salvation. Nor should you. Who's the one doing the saving? Who's the one bringing people into the church? The Lord. The Lord added. John 6, 45. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So who is doing the saving? It's God. What does he say about his church? Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against it. The fact that God is sovereign over salvation guarantees that all who Christ died for will be represented at the end of the age, will be represented in heaven. It's a guarantee. And that is comforting to know when we're evangelizing that it's not up to you. It's not up to you. But God has a people that he's calling to himself and he wants to use you to preach the gospel to them so that they would come. So why is this important to know that God is the author of salvation? One, because it's humbling to know that you, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that required God to save you from it. That's the only thing you contributed to it is the sin that sent Jesus to the cross to die for you. That's humbling. 
You don't deserve it. Why is this important? Because you need to be thankful that God set His love upon sinners to save them. Not based on anything they've done before you were born. Out of love. He adopts you into His family. You know, the early Christians were known for adopting babies that the Romans would take and dump in their city dumps. I don't want this child worthless to me. Imagine going to a dump and finding hundreds of babies there. And the Christians seeing them and setting their love upon their affection upon them and picking them up, the baby's helpless, and bringing them into your arms, bringing them home, raising them, giving them a seat at the table. That is the picture of God's love towards you, towards sinners. What an amazing love. That's the doctrine of adoption. That's beautiful. Ephesians 1.5, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why is this important that God is the author of salvation? He's the one in control of it all because he gets the glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. So if God is the great evangelist then, I already hear some of your objections. Why evangelize? If God's the one that saves, I could just sit back and eat my Cheetos and watch Phil Mickelson, a 50-year-old golfer, win the, the... None of you guys watch golf. That was a bad illustration, all right? Good for you, Roman. I can just sit back. I don't have to do anything. You preachers of God's sovereignty over all things, including salvation, you're only hindering evangelism. Point number three. How are the lost being saved? How are the lost being saved? What is God's means of saving sinners? Yes, he is the agent, the cause of salvation. But what is, who does he use to save sinners? That is us. How are the lost being saved? Through the spoken word of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing the word of God preached. Here it is. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him if they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, faith comes by hearing. How do they hear? Through a preacher or an evangelist that God sends. Beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The, word, the Lord spoke into existence this world. He spoke into existence Adam. He breathed his breath, the breath of life into Adam. But yet, he doesn't breathe life into sinners. When it comes to the salvation, that's on man. See, God is not only the giver of life at creation, he is the agent and cause of life at the new creation. Over both. So, 
How are the lost being saved? Through the preaching of the gospel, which means you can't sit back eating Cheetos, watching the Mandalorian, right? It means that we are commanded to evangelize. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. So here's the conundrum, God's sovereignty and our responsibility in evangelism. Most, of, most people see these as a contradiction, but two things can be true at once. And I'm not making this up. This isn't philosophy. This is the word of God. I gave you all the verses. Two things can be true at the same time. God is the sovereign evangelist. He is the one that must make the dead sinner alive. But at the same time, God uses people, believers, to be his ambassadors, his means of preaching the gospel to the lost. Two things can be true at the same time. When C.H. Spurgeon, he was once asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He said, I don't need to reconcile friends. They're friends. They don't contradict The other thing is we can't philosophize to understand the mind of God. I never reconcile friends, Spurgeon said. Friends, yes, friends. This is the point that we all have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not sibling rivalries. or They are not in an endless state of a cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. God is the evangelist and we are his laborers. Here's a verse for you. Mark chapter 4. Jesus in the parable of the sower and then this other parable of the farmer gives us the illustration of God the Savior and man the co-laborer in evangelism. Mark 4, 26 through 28. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We're, we're throwing the gospel out. We're scattering the seed. He sleeps. He goes to bed after he scatters this, the seed and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. And the farmer knows not how. The earth produces by itself First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. So he spreads the gospel. He spreads the seed. He goes to sleep. God brings the growth. He brings the growth. We're called to scatter that seed. Have we been doing that? Perhaps if we scattered the seed more, we would see more growth. Because God is a God who longs for sinners to be saved. He desires all men to be saved, even though we know not all men will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, see the condition is belief. Whoever believes in him, We'll have everlasting life. We preach the gospel. We scatter the seed to anyone and everyone. Whoever believes. But we know that belief is a gift from God. We are commanded to evangelize. God, the lost are being saved through the spoken word. But lastly, through the word lived. How are the lost being one to Christ? Through the witness, not only of the spoken gospel, but of the visible gospel. The fellowship, the unity, and the love of the church. I'm sure it blew people away. And so is Redeemer Students a place that demonstrates that love of the gospel? 
That is winning souls for Jesus by the way we love one another. Is that true of us? Are we evangelizing in such a way that people understand the message and in a way as we fellowship, is our fellowship a good testimony to those who, we, who are visiting here? Do they see the gospel in our lives? I pray they would. I pray you would if you're visiting. Why do I share this with you? One, I want you to have a deep concern for the lost by understand the, understanding the state of the lost sinner. And if you are here tonight and you don't know Jesus, you are lost and dead in your sins, and the only way you can be saved is if God makes you alive. He needs to perform a miracle. Repent, cry out to him to save you, and he will save you. Receive new life. No longer be enslaved to your sin. Secondly, I I want you to have a deep sense of awe over God the Savior, God the Evangelist, the one who saves, the sovereign grace of God. And let that give you a zeal to evangelize a dying world, knowing that you aren't doing it alone, but you are God's ambassador, co-laborer, Scatter the seed and watch God bring the, bring the growth. Redeemer students, we face a task unfinished. Let's be who God called us to be by His grace, has made us to be. A witnessing church, a soul-winning church. And may this summer be a means where you don't waste your summer, but you use it to bring people to Jesus Christ. We serve an amazing God who loves to save sinners. There's nothing greater than being a part of that saving work. By witnessing and evangelizing, by praying for the lost, ask the Lord to give you opportunities. I promise you he will.